Hello, my name is Garrison Lovely, and I'm not that interesting, but this is the most interesting people I know. Conversations on science, ethics, and politics. Today's guest is Leah Garces. Leah is the president of Mercy for Animals, one of the world's largest effective animal advocacy organizations. She was previously the executive director of Compassion and World Farming USA. Today, we discuss her book, Grilled, Turning Adversaries into Allies to Change the Chicken Industry. Leah tells a remarkable story of how she teamed up with farmers to expose the world to the horrible conditions and practices in American chicken farms. As we discuss, her work with farmers, journalists, documentarians, and activists pressured chicken producers to make significant commitments to improve welfare standards for their birds. Even if you don't care about the welfare of chickens for whatever reason, the labor conditions of the typical chicken factory farmer should be enough to outrage you. Saddled with debt and squeezed by an oligopoly of chicken producers, the typical American chicken farmer ekes out poverty wages and spends their days walking through ammonia-clogged chicken coops, picking out dead birds. Beyond these campaigns, Mercy for Animals produces a lot of other great work, like their drone footage of factory farms and the destruction of the Amazon. In this episode, we discuss Leah's vision for how we'll relate to animals in 2050, why we should care about chickens, the evidence we have that they can suffer, conditions in a typical coop, how chickens have been bred to suffer, how Leah started working with a chicken factory farmer, the brutal economics and lifestyle of chicken farming, how the incentives conspire against the welfare of the chickens and the people farming them, Leah's work getting footage of chicken farms out to the world, her meetings with executives at chicken producers and the resulting welfare improvements, whether factory farming is the greatest moral atrocity in the world, whether factory farm executives are like war criminals, whether companies will make good on their animal welfare commitments, and Leah's plans for mercy for animals. Here is Leah Garces. Leah, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm so glad to be here. So let's just start with your vision for 2050. What do you hope our relationship with animals looks like 30 years from now? Well, 30 years from now, there will be, in 2050, there's going to be 10 billion people on the planet. So my vision is that we've moved our food production system completely away from using animals altogether, and that we've replaced that with something that is humane and sustainable uh, and kind and compassionate to ourselves, to animals, and to the planet. And how do you hope that we, we're going to get there? Well, I think the main way is, is through replacing animal production with protein production that comes from plants. And I think the partners that we will have to get there will not be the ones we think. It's It won't be by beating down the animal ag industry, but rather getting them to really buy into protein production coming from plants rather than animals. And we already see some signs of what I'm calling the protein revolution, this change in which we no longer see protein needing to come from animals, but can come from other sources. Yeah. And so your whole book Grilled is about actually, instead of fighting chicken farmers necessarily, you're working with some of them to expose industry practices and, and lead to uh, corporate commitments, right? Yeah. I mean, it was a big revelation for me. I spent most of my career really being angry at and wanting to destroy, you know, farmers and the industry. And it wasn't until I actually met a factory farmer that I became more open and understood the problem better and understood the solutions we needed better. And this really was a revelation for me and switched how I think we need to work to solve this problem of ending the exploitation of animals for food. Yeah, so I definitely want to get to that story. But before we get there, um, this book is about chickens, specifically chickens raised for meat, which are known in the industry as broiler chickens. Uh And I think like 
most people would prefer their farmed animals to be raised in humane conditions if they're going to eat them. But it seems like a lot of people really just don't care about chickens in particular. So, so why should they? Yeah, I think, I think a lot of people don't care about chickens simply because they're not like us. They're not mammals. And so it is very difficult for us to relate to animals that are not like us. And, and unfortunately, our feathered friends and our scaled friends fall into that category, those animals. And, but physiologically, biologically, there is no difference between the dogs and cats that share our homes and the fish and the chickens that end up on our plates. They can feel pain, they can suffer. And if we care about suffering and reducing suffering on the planet, this the raising of, of chickens presents the largest, this large scale suffering that human beings are involved with on a daily basis. People in the United States are eating chicken on a daily basis. In fact, a, a per, an American eats 25 individual chickens a year on average. So that's an immense amount of suffering that we individually are contributing to. And, but also on the flip side is very, very simple to resolve. Very, very simple to step away from that and, and improve and reduce suffering in the world. So I think you can care about it because it's an opportunity to reduce suffering in a very tangible way. And also, if you really kind of scratch beneath the surface, there is no difference between the chickens that end up in factory farms and the dogs and cats that we've come to love. They are able to feel pain, they're able to feel joy, and all the things that, that we accept in our pets are the same for the farmed animals that we eat. Yeah, some friends of mine actually just adopted a chicken, and I uh, met, met her a few days ago. And it was a strange experience because he also has a dog, and the chicken just is very different, right? It walks around like a, kind of like a dinosaur. And <laughs> if you try and pick it up the wrong way, it'll like freak out and it will eat out of your hands. But it's like just not something I'm used to interacting with. Um, so, so how do we actually know that chickens are suffering? There are a, There's a lot of science that's been done around this through animal welfare scientists. Um, and one of the most uh, telling studies that was ever done uh, was where broil so broiler chickens are made to grow very big, very fast. And as a result, their bodies are, are in pain, and in particular, their legs. So it's sort of like putting uh, a grape on two toothpicks, and they wobble, and they have a very uh, spread out gait when they walk, and they'll collapse under their own weight. Their muscular skeletal system cannot keep up with the demands of the growth for this big breast meat that we all want as consumers. Uh, and the way we know that they're experiencing pain is there was a study done where it's, it's called preference testing. It's a typical animal welfare way to test uh, animals and their preferences. And chickens, broiler chickens, these meat chickens that were raised to grow so fast they were given two options for feed. One had the equivalent of aspirin in it to relieve pain. And the other had was just normal feed, nothing in it. And very quickly, the birds figured out which one was giving them relief. And they chose, they chose the feed with the aspirin. And they always do that in those studies, which is an indicator that they are in pain and they are seeking relief. If they're given the option of relief, they will choose that relief. This was, you know, a very clear study that was done. 
Um, there's been many other studies that have done, but that's probably one of the clearest that shows us that the way our, the standard breeds that we use for the 9 billion chickens we raise and slaughter for meat in this country, they are in pain and they would prefer not to be. And so you've actually spent some time in chicken uh, chicken coops, correct? I have spent a lot of time, more than I care to admit, probably, yes, um, over the years. And, yeah, so what, yeah. what are those conditions like on the ground? Um, well, they vary, of course, but the typical, um, you know, it's a, it's a very long warehouse, essentially, that birds are kept in. And the typical numbers uh, is about 30,000 birds and kept in a warehouse that's longer than a football field. And it's usually a darkened warehouse with no windows uh, and big fans that are trying to ventilate the air um, from the outside to the inside and back out again. Now, the birds are wall-to-wall. When they're very small, they seem to have a lot of space, but they soon go from sort of the size of your fist to the size of a football in a short six-week period. And in that time, if you came back from the beginning to the end of a six-week period in which they grow to that size, only six weeks, so you know, usually around 40 days, they will be walled a sea of birds. You'll just see this sea of birds. And this entire time, they have been defecating on this litter, and it's never changed. And it's often cha- not changed between flocks either. And because it's inconvenient and it's, it's a massive effort to do that and dispose of that waste. And so they might turn it and try to compost it, but generally the waste stays. And as a result, there's a huge amount of ammonia in the air to the extent that they try to set limits on the amount of ammonia, the parts per million that can be in the air. And there's an enormous amount of dust as well because all the birds are flapping and all this dust from their feathers and from the litters coming up. So it's just this kind of toxic soupy air that the birds are breathing in. So if you step in, it's you're accosted with this smell and this dust and it gets in your hair and your nose and your eyes and you taste it. It's and, and you think, okay, if you go into one of these houses, you're in and out. But this is the whole life of these birds. This is their entire life spent in this windowless warehouse on their own feces with nothing to do and nowhere to go. That's their whole life. That's it. And this causes a lot of health problems for the for the birds themselves, correct? So the birds have the most amount of problems that they have are more related to their genetics and our desire to grow a really cheap big bird really fast. Um, so the thing driving the biggest issues for them in terms of their suffering is related to the breed and the fast, the unnaturally fast growth. And that's from selective breeding. So just like we have uh, breeds of dogs that will breed for certain characteristics, like, you know, a certain tail or a certain color or certain character. Well, we have bred chickens for like one characteristic. And that one characteristic is the, the size of their breast. They want, we want like a very cheap, large breast and, the rest of the body is is an un- unintended consequence of pain for these birds, um, and they are certainly uncomfortable in the ammonia and the feces. They have uh, they're sitting on this hot litter all the time, and so the first time I, I went in there, the first thing I did was pick up a bird and, and look at her underbelly, and it was raw. It was a red raw color from just being on that hot litter, 
and rubbing and shifting and shifting and shifting on that hot litter. And that can cause infections. You'll see like infectious spots on the birds, on their outer, uh, on their skin. Um, And you can also have disease that emerges, of course, in these settings because, you know, imagine you're on a subway or something your whole life. um, And the results is you're going to get infections if you're passing between and, you know, in a darkened, unhealthy, overcrowded environment. Well, the same thing happens with these birds and farmers are trying their best to keep disease out. They wear boots and kind of have ways of cleaning themselves before they come in and out of the houses. But inevitably disease gets in from one flock to the other and it very easily spreads. Um, And once it's in, it's very hard to get rid of because of all the things I've said where they don't change the litter uh, and I saw this in a couple of farms in West Virginia. There was a terrible disease called gangrenous dermatitis, which was where the uh, bacteria that eats the birds from the inside out and affects the birds. And it's very gruesome. Um, and other, many other diseases can affect the birds. And there's just a constant battle to keep disease out of these, of these circumstances. And these conditions you're describing, these are standard practice for the industry, right? Yes, they are standard practices. Um, The majority of the industry is like this. And some, so we have been working as a coalition, a coalition of organizations have been working to change this this situation. And we've gotten over a hundred companies to sign up to changing their supply, which means it will change the practice of the producers by 2024. Um, And these include big players like Subway, for example. So some of the producers are starting to get ready for this and change their practices like Purdue. So while Purdue used to be, um, you know, a kind of bad guy, they've completely come over and tried to embrace some of these changes, like putting windows in the houses, giving the birds more space, putting some enrichment in the houses and looking and thinking about the breed. But still, that's the hardest part for most companies to embrace. Yeah, I definitely want to come back to those reforms. Um, but I just want to, so we're laying out chickens live very miserable lives, um, not just driven by conditions, largely driven by genetics. But even if you don't care about animals for whatever reason, or you aren't convinced that chickens can suffer, uh, the farmers themselves are also living in these conditions for many hours every day and, and going through and having to pick out dead birds. Uh, can you just describe um, or maybe tell us about Craig Watts and how the relationship started and like what you saw working with him. Yeah. Um, so before I met Craig Watts, I had never really sat down and thought about or talked to a chicken farmer before. I just saw them as bad guys. Uh, and then an opportunity presented itself. A journalist asked if I was willing to come to a coffee shop and look at some papers that he had obtained from somewhere. And I didn't know where. And it was regarding the feed that was given to a particular farm over a decade. And that's usually super secretive information that you can't get any other way. Um, it, you know, that you have to be the owner to have this. And when I looked at it, I said, how did you get this? And I figured he was going to tell me, oh, I, I snuck it out or I had an undercover investigator. And he said, oh, the farmer gave it to me. And I was like, okay, the farmer must be crazy or desperate or both. Um, and I said, would you connect me to him? And he did. And that turned out to be Craig Watts. And after a series of texting and um, phone calls, I worked up the courage to say, hey, Craig, you know, it seems like we both don't like the way things are. He was telling me about 
welfare problems on his farm. He was telling me about the injustices of how farmers are treated. And I said, would you be willing to let me come and film on your farm? And he said, sure, bring a camera. And I really didn't know what I was stepping into. I was very nervous to go and see him. I had never had that kind of positive relationship or open relationship with a, with a factory farmer. But we went, my friend Reagan and I, Reagan Hodge and I, who's a filmmaker, she came along with me. And as we're heading there, we're like, okay, what's going to happen? This must be an ambush. But it turned out great. And we, you know, I sat there, I spoke to him and I started to understand his problems, which I had never thought about before. Now, basically he's a contract chicken farmer, which means he signs a contract with a major poultry producer like Tyson or Purdue. And he has chickens dropped off to him and he has to raise them. And then they come, the company comes and picks them up at the end and he gets paid depending on how many chickens he's brought to slaughter age. He's also paid depending on the efficiency of that. So related to how much feed could get that bird that big, that fast. Um, and otherwise, all of the costs are up to him. He has to, he took out in, Craig Watts in particular took out in 1992, a quarter of a million dollar loan to buy the warehouses, buy the equipment. And that was all on him. He had to take out that loan. And the poultry company in return said, okay, we'll sign a contract and flock to flock will pay you. And then he would use that payment to pay off the loan like a mortgage. And it went great at first, but then... After a while, birds started to get sick. There was problems with um, the shipments, and he started to fall behind on some of these loans. And he started to realize he had made a mistake. And <coughs> excuse me, the the main reason he had wanted to do this in the first place is he had wanted to stay on this land and raise his kids there. He had been a fifth generation farmer, and with the tobacco industry falling out years earlier, there wasn't really any other jobs in the area. It's Fairmont, North Carolina, the poorest county in, in, in the state. And this was it. This was the only way to stay on this land and raise his kids in the way he was raised and all his you know previous family had been raised. So he signed up to grow chickens. And then after a while, it became clear that he was about to risk his land and his house and everything because he was falling behind on these payments to this loan, which is tied to his land. And that's kind of where I came in and realized, you know, this system is a problem, not just for the chickens, but it's also for the chicken farmers. So chicken farmers across America, they are $5.2 billion in debt to the corporations um, that they, they raise chickens for. So they're saddled with this debt. They have few options for improving their own lives, let alone the chickens' lives. And it's a big problem. And you know, in addition, there's something called the tournament system. And that's where farmers are divided into groups called complexes, kind of like sports leagues, and they compete against each other. And the goal is to raise chickens to the right weight at the lowest cost. And when a farmer wins, I put in quotes like wins in the tournament, he's literally taking money away from the neighboring farmers. And when he loses, he's paying his neighbors out of his own paycheck. So, and the chicken companies still make the same amount. So, you know, it's a really messed up system for the animals, but also for the chicken farmers. And a lot of chicken farmers want 
change. They want out. They want to do something different. And if there was another way of staying on that land of paying the bills, I think a lot of people would sign up to it. Yeah, it's a really sad and interesting case um, where, in this case, the buyers have so much power mm-hmm. over the suppliers, and there's so many suppliers. There's a pretty low barrier to entry. Um, if you did like a Porter's Five Forces analysis of like this mm-hmm. industry, being a chicken farmer would not be a, a good one to enter just structurally. Um, and I, I actually looked into it, and, and the chicken producers themselves, their profit margins are like ten percent or so. It's right. nothing like crazy. So I'm just, it seems like a, a just tough industry overall. Uh, Americans demand like cheap protein and uh, someone's going to get squeezed in the process, it appears. Yeah, a lot of these farmers, they say they haven't received a raise in 20 years, but obviously that's not going to be the case in a in a Tyson or a Purdue. They are raising more money and their shareholders are gaining. And, you know, I think the farmers get squeezed out. They get paid five cents a pound for the birds and we as consumers are paying a dollar a pound. So they're getting 5% of what we're paying at the supermarket for birds. And that gives you an, but they're doing, you know, they're raising the birds. They're taking the loans out. They're, they're doing, taking all the risk uh, related uh, that's been outsourced. All the risk is outsourced to the farmers and the companies take on all the profitable aspects. And, and the actual life of a chicken farmer, it's not like they're managing a team of employees oftentimes. Like Craig is going through the, the, the coops himself and actually picking out dead birds to keep the flock relatively healthy, correct? Yeah. I mean, I think the, the main job of a chicken farm owner today is to remove, record, and dispose of dead birds on a daily basis. So their job is to walk those houses and find birds that look like they're about to die or are runts that they kind of make the calculation that's not worth the feed I'm going to put into that one. So I'm going to euthanize them now or, you know, birds that look like they're having some kind of welfare issue and they think, well, that's that bird's suffering too much. But you have to think every time they do that, they're making, they're doing these little algorithms. You know, the, the farmers are doing algorithms to try to figure out like, how much did I already pay for that bird and feed? Can they make it? Because otherwise I don't get money for that bird. So it's totally at a disadvantage to welfare. It, it almost presses the farmer to do the worst thing for the, you know, they're choosing between money and their, their to pay, you know, for their families food and their bills versus the welfare of those birds. And you know, what's, you know, you know what they have to choose, right? So it'd be a, an exceptional person that could choose the welfare of the birds over the feeding your kids. So the system is stacked against the farmers doing the right thing for farmed animals in terms of welfare there. It should not be, they should just get a set fee, the set amount, but that's just not how it works. And it doesn't, there's no company that does it any other way. Yeah. I mean, that, that kind of seems like one of the core problems with factory farming, right? Where profit is the only thing really taken into consideration and the welfare of the animals or the people working uh, in the industry just aren't really considered in, in, the, in the process of making decisions. Yeah. I think efficiency is, is, the, is the name of the game in factory farming. They're just trying to get the most efficient animal, which at some point you're pushing the animal beyond its metabolic limits. And that's when I think you start to get a breakdown of the physiology of the animal, which is what you're seeing in our, in our chicken industry now, where the birds are literally collapsing under their own weight. They're literally 
unable to make it to 42 days, which is unfathomable since a bird, a chicken can naturally live to eight to 10 years. So the fact that birds aren't even able to make it six weeks is, is an indication of how much trouble we're in, in terms of the welfare of these animals, how much we push them beyond their metabolic and physiological limits. Yeah. And, and so now you, you've met with Craig and you've gotten this remarkable footage and there hadn't really been footage of a factory chicken farm for decades before this. Yeah, it had been about a decade. Um, the previous footage had been done by Compassion Over Killing um, in about 2003. And since then, no one had secured footage. And when I was filming in there, that was front and center in my mind. You know, American people had not seen the inside of a chicken farm. Since then, there's been about half a dozen undercover investigations done. But you know, regardless, it's, it's unfathomable that America's favorite protein, the way those animals are raised can only be seen through undercover investigations. And in fact, that's becoming super difficult because these ag gag laws are being passed, which are intentionally being done to keep Americans in the dark about the cruelties and the nature of factory farming. So like North Carolina and Arkansas and you know, half a dozen states have laws that would make it really impossible and illegal to collect footage like this and report cruelty and whistleblow as, you know, the ag-ag laws in North Carolina were passed after Craig and I worked together, uh, only less than a year after we worked together. So some of the thing, question, things we did together questionably would have been illegal, possibly. That's, that's pretty incredible, even with his permission. It's questionable. It's his farm, but the company's chickens. So mm. we, I don't know if we would have been, as a, as a small organization, have been that I was working at before, which is called Compassion World Farming, would have been willing to challenge the law in that way. Uh, I don't know. It's, but you know, those are intentionally done to discourage and intimidate whistleblowers from being truth tellers about what's happening. And that can be an abuse to a human. It could be an abuse to an animal. It could be an abuse to the environment or food safety. It could be any kind of abuse. And that's now very, it's becoming more and more challenging. And it's our job as advocates to challenge that law. You know, the law often protects the status quo. And in this case, the status quo is not okay. And it will be something that we continue to want to challenge. Yeah, it certainly doesn't reflect well in your industry where you're, when you're making laws to prevent people from just filming everyday practices. Right. I mean, Temple Grandin, who you know is a respected industry consultant, said it was the stupidest thing that the ag industry ever did because exactly that reason. It's It just oh, shows you have something to hide. That's interesting. Yeah. I, I mean, I can't imagine it's constitutional, but who knows with the conservative Supreme Court what that'll end up being. Yes. And I think that the day will come when that is challenged and we will see this at some point raised in that way and challenged in that way. Yeah. Yeah. And and so with this footage, you ultimately got it out to the world and had some assistance from journalists at the New York Times, correct? Yes. So we put the footage out together um, and it was picked up by Nicholas Kristoff from the New York Times and it went viral. And also um, Marin McKenna, who was working at Wired at the time. So between those two, the video really went viral. And it was this unlikely partnership that I think piqued the interest of the public, this animal rights activist and a factory farmer joining forces to expose the truth about what's really going on in America's favorite protein, 
Um, we had a million views in 24 hours. Uh, and it really gave a megaphone to this issue. And from there, we started to see this issue rise on the public agenda, on the corporate agenda, uh, and really give way to to some changes that we later saw there's, that we're still working on, but uh, give way to an atmosphere in which change was possible. And this ultimately led you to meeting with some of the biggest names in uh, the chicken industry. Yeah, probably the most surprising one was per- Jim Perdue himself. Uh, so the viral video that I just mentioned placed him as the villain and, you know, really showed a commercial in which he was saying how great their chicken farming was, how much they liked their farmers and how wonderfully they treated their chickens. And then we kind of showed what was really going on. Uh, And then fast forward a year and I'm sitting down to talk to the company and their executives. And the main thing, you know, I, I attribute them a lot, a lot to them sort of being willing to cross that divide. I was also uncomfortable with crossing that divide, but did it. Uh, They invited myself and a bunch, uh, probably three other advocates to come and have a discussion with them. And it was really scary to stand in front of a hundred of their senior leadership and say, here's what I think you're doing wrong. And by the way, I'm the one giving you a bad reputation because I put out the video, but they were willing to listen and they were surprisingly attentive and they had called us because after Compassion Well Farming had put out that footage, then Mercy for Animals did an undercover investigation showing some really horrific practices on their farms. And they, they kind of looked at each other. This is the story they tell. Said, are we okay with this? No, we're not okay with this. Has anybody called them? No, nobody's called them. We should call them. And they called us. They called Mercy for Animals. They called Compassion World Farming and a couple of their advocates and said, look, let's sit down and talk about what this would look like if we did make some changes. And by 2016, they put out the first animal care policy. And that was remarkable. Um, that was a, remarkable for the fourth largest chicken company in the United States to address some of the exact same things we had criticized them for. So moving towards putting windows in the houses, giving the birds more space, looking at enrichments, and even to, you know talking about the need to explore breed. They haven't made strong commitments around that, but they, they know that there's an issue. It's just very challenging to to change because of the efficiencies change so radically, but they know. And they've also committed to controlled atmosphere stunning, which means the birds are um, stunned before they're shackled, meaning they're not conscious when they're shackled, uh, which is a huge change and reduces a lot of suffering for the animals in the slaughterhouses. So then this, you know, caused some other companies to look at this. Wayne Farms was another one. And I think they're the sixth largest chicken company in the United States And they made the commitment to say, anybody who wants to uh, meet the ask that this group of advocates is making, we'll provide it. And so they made some changes and commitments to certify Global Animal Partnership chickens within within a portion of their supply. And this made, with the producer signing up, it made it possible for this then to advocate to um, their customers like Subway and Burger King, who then said, okay, we by 2024 will meet the demands of these um, organizations, such as Mercy for Animals and Compassion World Farming and, um, and the Humane League, asking for more space, a better breed of bird, 
you know, su- less suffering related to controlled atmosphere, stunning, more space. I think I said the enrichment, the lighting, all of these changes. Um, so it was, it's been a remarkable journey to go from where nobody had seen the inside of a chicken house to now big companies like Burger King and Subway are signing up to making some big reforms that will cost a lot of money, um, but reduce a lot of suffering. Yeah, I definitely want to come back to uh, whether these corporations will actually follow through. But I want to ask a question first. Uh, do you think that factory farming is the greatest moral atrocity happening in the world at the moment? I do. I, I think that factory farming is the leading cause of suffering on the planet. And it's very, very obviously the leading cause of suffering for farmed animals and the individual animals involved. There's 81 billion land animals raised and slaughtered per year. That excludes fish. If you add fish, we get into the trillions. And if we accept that these animals suffer, that they can feel pain, that they're conscious of their pain and they suffer, which is scientifically proven, then this is fundamentally the biggest cause of suffering on the planet in terms of the metrics, the numbers. But it also is, is causing so much suffering outside of farmed animals. So it's causing suffering of our health, of it's very related to climate change, and this has now been recognized by the United Nations. Um, and it hurts people of color and their communities disproportionately. So these factory farms are often created and built in uh, poor in poor regions where there's few job jobs um, and fewer, and the land is cheaper. It's you know it's an atrocity. It's an it's inefficient, a destructive way to feed people. Uh, and it's it really is a, a moral dilemma like no other. And we created this. We didn't create it very long ago. It was only seventy years ago. So for me, that like to keep that into perspective, like the, the span of time, and we only did this in seventy the last seventy years, and the destruction that has come and the suffering that's been created from just seventy years of this system. At the same time, it feels very, very tractable. Like we can undo this because we only did it in the last 70 years and there are replacements that are emerging. And all we need to do is win over this so-called enemy, the animal ag industry, because all they care about is the bottom line, right? They, they mostly just care about shareholders and paying their employees. And we just have to move them in that direction. And that's going to, that's just, you know, a basics of economic formula. We need to have a solution that works for everybody. Uh, but I do think to answer your original question, it is fundamentally the biggest cause of suffering on the planet. Yeah. Uh, I think from a human cause standpoint, I, I would agree wild animal suffering, just the sheer numbers of wild animals that exists, I think is a greater cause of suffering, but we are not as directly responsible for that. Um, but I guess at the risk of getting you in trouble, if, if that's true, doesn't it make the people presiding over it kind of like the worst war criminals in history? <laughs> yeah, um, I definitely have days when I think like that. And I think, um, what am I doing? Like, but, you know, I think the reality is, is they don't know that and they don't think that. Um, and I, I spent a lot of my advocacy, my first kind of, my stages of advocacy were, I've always been very pragmatic. And I initially thought, well, if only they knew, maybe they just don't know. Right. And then I found out that a lot of people do know, and they just still don't act. 
because they have other priorities and they can't make themselves act. And that made me super angry. That's where I got to the point where I'm like, they are evil people. But, you know, if you extend that out, basically everybody who eats meat is then in that category because they're, they're mercenaries, right? They're just paying someone else to do this work, to do this evil thing. And that really is a, a very <laughs> dark rabbit hole to go down that doesn't help make any progress. And the reality is only 5% of the world is vegan or vegetarian. In the United States, sorry, vegan or vegetarian. And that hasn't changed in 20 years. And our approach is not working. And so we have to look at this differently. And we have to look at the reasons why people are partaking in what is a, a fundamentally the biggest cause of suffering on the planet. And as a consumer, they're doing it because it's cheap, it's convenient, and it tastes good. And as the industry, they're doing it because they have shareholders and they have profits and they're competitive and they have bills to pay, they have employees to pay, benefits, kids, houses, et cetera. So instead of looking at it from a judgment point of view, I try to look at the fundamentals of why they're doing it and then trying to present them with an alternative that answers their needs in an alternative way. Um, because I think if you go down the dark rabbit hole of everybody's evil, you just get stuck in that hole. And there's no, there's no light at the end of the tunnel. There's no way out because that is not, that is not a um, effective way to embark on change in the world. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's this tricky balance, right? Because at least for me, a lot of this is motivated by moral outrage or at the very least, like thinking that something wrong is happening. But then at the same time, when I talk to friends and family about like why I don't eat meat, uh, not laying on the morality play too thickly <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> tends oh, yeah. to be more effective at getting people won over. Yeah. Um, I just explain it like without trying to shame anybody because yeah. people kind of just shut down their thinking. So it's this kind of pragmatic compromise where you're motivated by the morality, but you use the uh, less loaded uh, rhetoric and arguments when trying to actually win people over. Yeah, it's tough. It's really tough to remain level-headed when it is a moral outrage, what's happening. But if you are so morally outraged and, and you kind of are, you, you have to solve, you have to be a problem solver and think, how is this, how, how will it help animals to just be angry? It won't. We have to move the needle in whatever way we can. That's going to help animals. And that's the most moral thing for us to do. And judging people, we know psychologically people just shut down. The wall goes up, they stop listening. And we know that, you know, most people, when they switch over, it's because of health related reasons. So it's self-interest. And, but then they, the kind of nail in the coffin for them is the, their moral outrage. Now that they've started to do the right thing, now that they have chosen a plant-based diet because of their own self-interest in health, then they kind of are open because now they're not being judged. They're open to hearing the moral arguments and they open up in that way. And that often seals the deal and makes sure they don't go back. Uh, and that's, a, I think, a lesson to us about how do we introduce this idea to people if we want to change their minds. We have to think about their self-interest. Why would they do this? They have so many other things to think about. And we have to make it interesting to them. And there has to be an advantage to them. And luckily, with stopping eating animals and ending animal agriculture as we know it, there are so many advantages and you just have to choose one that appeals to the person you're trying to work toward the change. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I stopped eating meat for ethical reasons and then became more open to the even very radical uh, critiques and arguments coming from the animal rights and animal welfare communities. Yeah. And so I, I'd imagine that happens for, for most people who go through this. Yeah. Um, I guess, so one thing I wanted to come back to is uh, there's this really good post in the Effective Altruism Forum looking at corporate campaigns right. and a bunch of companies, these are mostly mostly for cage-free eggs, a bunch of companies failed to meet their commitments. Mm-hmm. And the date they said they would have gone cage-free came and went. And then there was kind of no real reaction from the activist community. Mm-hmm. And the author's fear, which I share, is that companies will see this and realize that, oh, maybe these commitments are toothless and I can say this, get a bunch of good press and then get very little when I fail to meet it because it's more expensive or difficult to go cage-free or improve welfare conditions for broiler chickens or, or whatever the commitment may be. Yeah. So is this a fear that you share and is this something you have ideas of how to prevent? Yeah. Um, so I, first of all, I think that that concern is a little bit ex- exaggerated in, in our movement and the effective altruist movement. I think as far as I know, there's only been a handful of uh, companies that have done that. In the particular, the one was Burger King. So Burger King is, is touted as an example of this, where they said they would go cage-free by 2017, and they were one of the first ones to make that announcement. And then when 2017 came around, they were just like, there's no supply, I cannot, we can't do it. And that was an instance where they came out way ahead of everyone else, and then supply was not there to meet their demand. And they then switched it they didn't say they're not doing it. They just switched it to, I think, 2025 instead. And so while that is a concern, I think what the benefit of what Burger King did was say that a company was willing to stick their neck out and do this. And this actually, this actually was a catalyst for some other companies competitively announcing at the same time that they would, or in, in future years saying they would. And so while it's not great that Burger King's date came and went, it did catalyze other companies to get on board and do and they and complete that commitment. Um, So, you know, it's a strategic game we play here and we're playing off companies competition against each other and making animal welfare a competitive issue. Um, I think the lesson learned from it was we have to be working with producers as well to ensure supply is there. And so there's, we have to track that. So there are new tools out there that we're trying to use to track progress and track companies' progress against this, um, against you know their their commitment. And so we can't wait until the last minute. And when I've done calculations on how much do I think a commitment is worth, and I actually um, surveyed the uh, advocacy groups and. Some said they thought it was worth 30, some thought 70. I settled on 50. So I think a commitment is worth 50% of the time, effort, and money. And then 50% is is then completing that equipment, that commitment. So our job is only halfway done as advocates when we've gotten the commitment. But it's definitely better than not having one because then we can go to shareholders and board and the media and say, hey, they, they said they were going to do this. What does it say about a company that doesn't complete their commitment? That concerns shareholders. That concerns their PR team. That concerns customers who aren't going to believe this company. So it's one step. It's not the only step, but it's a very, very important step. Without You could say the same thing about law. So law is passed, and then law is not followed at all times. And 
having the law in place is better than not having the law, even if people aren't always following it. And the same goes with corporate commitments. So securing corporate commitments is a critical step. But the next step is then getting them to cross the finish line. And we as advocates have a very big job in getting them to do that and running campaigns equal to that. And we are working on that. That is a big part of everyone's, whether it be Mercy for Animals, where I work, Compassion over compassion in World Farming, or um, humanely, this is a big part of our work and we focus on it now as a priority campaign. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so we're coming up on time. I just want to ask what you have planned for the future for Mercy for Animals. So we continue to focus on two big areas. One is cage-free commitments outside of the United States. So in Mexico, Brazil, um, and we're looking, starting to look towards Asia as well. And in the United States on cage-free, we're looking at uh, completing the commitments. So where we've gotten all the companies pretty much to sign up, we're now looking at enforcement. In the United States, we're also focused on broilers and securing more corporate commitments. In particular, McDonald's is a big focus for us. They're one of the companies that has not um, completed that commitment and or signed up to the commitment at all. And so we have a lot of work being done on corporate engagement and securing more commitments, especially around broilers and laying hens. We also have an, a new project that we're thinking about, which is really looking about how to transition farmers out of factory farming. Are there other options, other economic models that they could follow, whether it be mushrooms or hemp or other options to kind of build an alternative economic model for them, which I'm excited about. That's very exciting. Um, and I'll just plug your book, Grilled. Uh, this is why we're talking. And I really enjoyed it. It was uh, optimistic, but still detailed, like the hard work that you and others have done on behalf of some of the people and animals that are really not being heard from. Um, and it's a, it's a quick read. I learned a lot about the industry and uh, some very effective advocacy. And I uh, just want to give you a chance to plug anything else. No, that's great. Um, thank you for, for plugging the book. I um, I hope others learn from it, not just there about the broiler industry, but also about how to um, how to negotiate with difficult uh, difficult opponents. Um, I'll also just plug Mercy for Animals, mercyforanimals.org. You can sign up to be part of our corporate campaigns and uh, learn more about our organization, our undercover investigations, and other ways to get involved. Cool, Leah. It's been a pleasure talking with you. You too. Thanks so much for having me. This has been the most interesting people I know. If you enjoyed the show, please rate it on iTunes. I don't know why this matters, but every other podcast I listen to asks people to do this. Music is by me. Podcast design is by Jacob Abrowitz. I hope you enjoyed the show.